0: Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Cormac Larkin. I'm a PhD student at the University of Heidelberg and Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics, where I study anything and everything to do with massive stars.
1: I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study high redshift quasars.
2: Always a mystery if Sabrina's going to say Melbourne or Melbourne. (laughs) You never know what you're going to (laughs) get. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a final year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and
0: Neptune. You're listening to episode 83, Stellar Shrinkflation. As you all know, unless you skip the not pre-recorded intros, I study massive stars. But while we may be on three different continents, the global financial system spares nobody. As a result, even I am having to consider downsizing. (laughs) 35, 50, 100 solar masses just not going to fly these days, what with the price of gas and all, and also sustainability, right? It's not good for the environment. So today... We're going to look at the smallest, reddest, and exoplanetist stars, M-dwarfs. Exoplanetist. Interesting take. Uh, Before we go on, I want to cut
2: in. This is not a show about politics, but I'm going to make it about economics for a minute. I'm very tired of everyone saying that the economy is so bad. Things are terrible. Look, inflation is down to 3%. The unemployment rate is at a record low. In the US, for sure. Europe, not quite record, but still low. The stock market's up 18% this year. Housing prices have leveled out. Sure, could it be better? Yeah, but it's not bad. The economy is good. Anyway, Cormac.
1: This is an Ameri-centric viewpoint.
2: Yeah, we're in recession in
0: Europe. All right, fine, fine, fine. Let's go back to stars. Leaving economics to one side, let me play devil's advocate. So as a massive stars person, from my perspective, these stars seem a little boring, so we're going to have a little debate. You're going to try and convince me why they're interesting, so... First of all, we we all know that there's an entire zoo of stars out there on the Hertzsprung Russell diagram, different masses, different luminosities, temperatures, etc. So where do M-dwarfs fit into this picture and and why do we call them dwarfs?
1: Yeah, M-dwarfs are quite the interesting little star. So they are on the main sequence, like our sun. In the core of every star on the main sequence, there is fusion of hydrogen into helium. Okay, so the sun is probably the most famous main sequence star, right? It has a mass of one solar mass. And we tend to compare all of the masses of stars in general to the solar mass. So anytime I say solar mass, I'm meaning the mass of the star. So main sequence stars tend to be really stable. We can use the main sequence to infer masses of stars if we know their luminosity. And a key point here is that actually the more massive a star is, the less time it will spend on the main sequence, which I think is really important for the exoplanet inhabitability studies that tend to go on around M dwarfs, right? Because their evolution is much longer, which means if they do form planets around them, that planetary formation stage actually takes up a smaller percentage of their total lifetime than, for example, a more massive star like the sun. Okay, okay. So before we go on to more of the details of M-dwarfs, I should say that M-dwarfs are a part of the spectral class M. So we can characterize stars into different spectral classes based on their temperatures and spectral features. Okay, so spectrally, M-dwarfs are a part of the M-class, which are stars that have temperatures less than about 3,500 Kelvin, and they have very weak hydrogen absorption lines. So their energy peaks in the near-infrared. And not all M-class stars are on the main sequence. As Cormac will tell you, red giants aren't on the main sequence as a star person. (laughs) He knows that much better than me. And there's also kind of, if we zoom out a bit, red dwarfs, which M-dwarfs fall under directly. And sometimes people refer to red dwarfs and M-dwarfs synonymously. Other times, as we know, in this confusing world of astronomy taxonomy, (laughs) rhymes red dwarfs can also be m dwarfs and k dwarfs stars that are a bit hotter so there's some confusion there but basically m dwarfs are stars up to about 0.6 solar masses and a temperature of about 3900
2: kelvin as a fun fact 50 of the 60 nearest stars to earth are m dwarfs but none of them are visible to the naked eye so they're dim despite being common and that's a really important feature Another really important thing that makes them what they are is, as you said, they're the longest-lived. In fact, none have evolved past the main sequence. We don't even know what their late-stage evolution might be, because it will take trillions of years.
1: Wait, I thought they became white dwarfs.
2: We think so, but we have no observational evidence. Oh. Another important piece about M-STARs is that they're fully convective. They have no radiation center in their interior, which is the most efficient type of circulation in a star, which means the helium does not accumulate at the core. It actually gets dispersed. So they can use up all of their hydrogen efficiently, which is part of the reason they also live so long. They have very slow fusion, but they also can use uh, their hydrogen more efficiently. So the astronomical equivalent of a sensible European care. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Will it last you a trillion years? Well, with proper maintenance.
0: Okay, so they got a long lifetime and they're very efficient okay so they're they're sort of the opposite of massive stars in some way exactly so a lot of other people who aren't stellar people find them interesting we've kind of touched on it already with exoplanets so if somebody wants to jump in about why they're interesting for exoplanet people
1: yeah i mean i think will touch on it key characteristics that make m dwarfs easier to study exoplanets is One, they're more common. Two, they're also less bright, which means that their habitable zones are much closer in. And planets that orbit around M-dwarfs will actually be easier to detect. So if, if we remember back to our exoplanet detection methods, there's the radial velocity method, which basically measures the wobble in the star from the exoplanet's gravitational force. And then there's the transit method, which is when the exoplanet is going in front of the star that's hosting it, there's a dip in the star's light. So both the wobble and the transit depth are larger for M-dwarfs, which makes it much easier to detect exoplanets around them. There's no evolutionary scenario that really says that there should be more exoplanets around M-dwarfs or anything like that. So one other thing that I wanted to mention was throwback to episode 66, B-filled Bonanza. It's actually turns out that it's not just optically that these stars are much better for exoplanet studies It's actually in radio wavelengths as well so we talked about this radio planetary interaction in that episode so there are kind of two ways that you can detect planets in the radio at least so far you can use aurorae. so that's the interaction of planet with host stellar wind so that's kind of what jupiter's radio emission comes from and then there's also changes as the planet orbits the star to the corona of the star itself so it's called coronal compression so both of these methods for detecting exoplanets in the radio have been studied extensively with M dwarfs for similar reasons, I think.
0: Very interesting. And so let's talk about habitability now. Earlier today, very coincidentally, John Mather from NASA, the project scientist for James Webb, he gave a talk about what James Webb has found and a part of the talk he mentioned M dwarfs. Mm and how they weren't very habitable because this magnetic activity, these outbursts, that the stars are very active, much more so than, say, the sun. And so this would probably sterilize any planets. So how does that fit into... The habitable zone might be there, but if it's not habitable... It's
1: counterintuitive, yeah.
0: As you mentioned, that's
2: one of the two main challenges with habitability of M-dwarfs, is that M-stars are highly, highly active because they have much stronger magnetic fields. So the way to think about this is that the magnetic field might be the same as the sun. It's just compressed down to a smaller space and you're closer to it. So the effect is much more tangled magnetic fields. That means more flares, more coronal mass ejections, a lot of danger for all those planets that are so close to the star. The other main challenge for habitability is tidal locking. Again, because they're close, these planets have one side facing the star at all times, which becomes baked, boiled off. And the other side is ice cold. So you can maybe make that habitable with a really thick atmosphere, how you keep a thick atmosphere on a small planet close to a star doesn't really make a lot of sense. We don't know of any. But the flares are a real challenge. And I think one of the arguments that I've heard for habitability is that it just would take a really long time. You would just have to wait until the activity of the star calms down over perhaps billions, perhaps trillions of years, and then maybe you could form secondary atmosphere at some late stage and become habitable. But that's, yeah, that's a real problem. And the fact that our selection bias makes us more likely to discover exoplanets around M-stars and that there are more M-stars, we keep discovering all these planets
0: with habitable zones that are not habitable. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that's something that I guess we'll touch on later in the discussion. I guess we should also talk about why there are more M-stars than massive stars. Why are there more little stars than big stars?
2: Well, it's just easier to form smaller stars. You need less stuff. And also, as a big cloud, a big gas cloud collapses, it's more likely to break apart into smaller, dense pockets, each of which becoming a star, instead of forming into one massive star. That's just uh, it's a little less energetically favorable. So it's less common.
1: Isn't stellar evolution in itself probably asking these questions, or is this for sure... The mechanism
2: no it's not for sure anything
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> this is what i taught
2: my undergrads last summer when i taught astronomy 102 and it sounds great in the textbook but it's
0: not at all a settled theory okay mm. well so i uh, definitely the upper mass end there's a lot of talk about top heavy initial mass functions over producing massive stars but i'm not very familiar with literature at the low end other than of course there's lots more of them from the initial mass function but I've heard there's some discussion about whether this also tails off that it becomes bottom light at some point, but I I don't know enough to try and sound informed about it, so I'm not going to pretend to.
2: Well, there's an argument about the brown dwarf population, which is not as numerous as the M dwarfs, we think. And so if you're saying brown dwarfs formed like M dwarfs, then yeah, you have to cut it off somehow and have them be less favored. But that's, that's another reason that these are interesting to study is because what is life like right at the fusion boundary? How do you go... To the non-fusion direction or to the fusion direction brown dwarfs do some fusion but mm. not hydrogen fusion so it's really a boundary between star and not star
0: so now that we're a bit more up to speed with what m dwarfs are and i've been convinced to at least continue the episode as a skip, <laughs> let's move to our first astrobite so first up is sabrina who is going to tell us about the now not so boring m dwarfs
1: okay so thanks for the intro cormac yes so my astrobite title today is called Ripples in Time, The Transient Nature of Mysterious M-Stars. And it's by Mark Popinchuk, whose favorite color is sky blue pink, which I Googled and it's not a color.
2: (laughs) Uh, We're going to have to do some sleuthing, figure out what's going on there.
1: It's very relatable to the way they write their astrobite, so I'm not surprised. The paper is called Transient Co-Rotating Clumps Around Adolescent Low-Mass Stars from Four Years of Tess tests being the transiting exoplanet sky survey which was launched in 2018 and its goal was to detect a bunch of exoplanets around low mass stars m dwarfs of course in particular fall under that category so we got a lot of observations from a lot of m dwarfs found a lot of exoplanets but that doesn't mean that we have to stop there we can also look into stellar science, right? It's not an exoplanet dominated world. We need to remember that stars are important too. This paper is by Luke G. Buma et al. It was published in 2023 and submitted to the AAS journals. So we've talked all about M-dwarfs and how very stable they are over long periods of time. I guess stable in some ways. There are also lots of things that make them not stable, like stellar flares and such. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: when we look up close we can actually see some really complex, interesting variations in their light curves. So that's the subject of today's astrobyte. So if it were a perfect, non-interesting star without a complex light curve, we might see just a flat light curve where the star's emission doesn't really change very much over time. Maybe mm-hmm. when an exoplanet passes in front of it, we see you know, a transit that we can very easily simulate depending on what we choose for our mass of the planet and the star. If there are star spots or star pulsations of some sort, we would expect some sort of sinusoidal time variations. But recently, the name of this phenomenon has changed many times over the years. But there's complex periodic variables, or CPVs, that are basically these really complex, interesting variations in M dwarfs light curves they also used to be called complex rotators dwarfs that exhibit this feature and scallop shell objects again scallop strange shell? astronomy naming <laughs> yeah because the light resembled scallop shells like if you go google scallop shell it's like a very chaotic complex looking thing and it's kind of scary oh, honestly when i looked at it
0: wow. yeah
1: but if anyone has a good imagery in their mind for what a scallop shell looks like you got the complex variability all sorted out. Like you can you can imagine it. <laughs> yeah, so contrarily to what I was saying before, we have these transits, these repeatable patterns over time, complex periodic variables, m-stars that exhibit these patterns do not show these repeating patterns, but have really sharp and kind of yeah, chaotic repeating patterns that are hard to explain with planets or star spots alone. Mm-hmm. So there are two reasons for why complex periodic variable stars exhibit this type of behavior in their light curves. One of them is there's just lots of clumps of material around the star. And the other one is prominences where these clumps of material are actually trapped in the B field of the star. So they haven't quite discerned which of the two it is, and they don't make a claim in this astrobite actually to, to say whether it's one or the other. These are the two theories for why this complex variability is seen in these light curves. So back to TESS. I said that TESS was in the title of this paper. TESS is not just for exoplanets. So what the authors do here is they look at two-minute cadence data from TESS. So what that means is they look at two-minute exposure times. You can get different exposure times for TESS. And I think that. Very depending on what they were looking at actually i'm not sure is it standardized does anyone know
2: there is some standard but i don't okay. remember i think two minutes is on the shorter end for tests i think they're usually pretty yeah. long exposures and being someone who likes to observe in the sub second exposure time <laughs> i find two minutes to be an eternity but i can see why for deep space objects
0: that's very short they have different intervals for different types of stars, I suspect. For seismology, so the pulsations of the star can be translated into changes in amplitude of the light coming from the star, and then they can try and figure out the gravity waves and things like that moving in the star. I mean, I'm going to check it out after this, and if I'm wrong, I'll cut all of this. So I guess uh, only one way to find out if you're actually hearing this, dear audience.
2: Going back to Tess and the astrobite, so what, what did the authors do with their two-minute data?
1: Yeah, so I think this will actually be quite interesting since we've got some contentious debates going on over here about how long these timescales should be. Mm -hmm. Should they be long? seems like Cormac likes the long cadence times, Will likes the shorter cadence times. Anyway, (laughs) so that's sort of one of the main points of this astrobite. So the authors look at two years of light curves from a bunch of these M stars and they found that there was a lot of complexity but they were also very different. So the authors look at M stars, 2 minute cadence data from tests over 2 years, and they found that some lost a lot of their complexity changing on the order of years. So if they looked at the same star from 1 year and then 2 years later, they saw that that star lost complexity and it wasn't as complex periodic variable as it was initially. They also looked at a particularly interesting M star LP-12502, if you like names and numbers for (laughs) particular objects in the sky. And they looked at a smaller subset of cycles. So I guess this is where Will might be more interested and found that changes, large and small, over even 10 to 20 cycles of this periodic behavior. There were some flares between the changes. Does this indicate that flares caused them? They're not really sure yet. But Mm -hmm. I guess the main takeaway from looking at these two different timescales is that the complex periodic variables, their variability changes on multiple timescales. They see some over multiple cycles, and then they also see some variability over two years. So there's a lot more follow-up and analysis to be done to determine which theoretical explanation we can use to describe these stars. And maybe they're different for m stars with changes over two years versus the ones that are changing much more rapidly. But it's a really interesting question. And it seems that the authors are going to look more into in the future and a really interesting use case for tests that I really haven't seen a lot of. I need to read more stellar variability studies. I think this episode has made me realize that maybe my stellar physics knowledge is lacking. (laughs) (laughs) So this has definitely encouraged that a bit.
2: Quick question. So they notice this interesting thing. They really don't know what it is.
1: Well, they say it could be these two scenarios right at the beginning. And if you look in the astrobite, you can see it. It's probably these clumps of material. And mm-hmm. then also the way that these clumps of material kind of block and unblock the sunspot, right? Unless the clump is orbiting at the same orbital period as a sunspot, Right. then we won't have as complex of variations in our light curve. But if those two orbits are mismatched, that causes a lot more chaos in the mix of things.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand.
1: Back to the skylight blue guys. So the last quote that I <laughs> wanted to read from this astrobite, which I found really lovely, is the astrobite author says something about these plots. They're called river plots. Basically, cycles are on the y-axis, and on the x-axis is phase of the cycle, and the color axis is intensity. So you can kind of see how these cycles change over multiple cycles at different points in their phase. So really exemplifying the variability of the light curves. Mark says that I find these plots peaceful. I want to be sat in an inner tube floating along their surface. So that's why (laughs) I feel like the skylight blue color, like it kind of matches the astrobite tone. Anyway, I loved it. Nice job, Mark. Thank you for bringing me some poetry. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah complex periodic variables guys let's do more
0: astrobites on mm. them <laughs> <laughs> love it yeah very interesting so now that we've had our first astrobyte it is of course time for the space sound which i have still not thought of a funny name for so i will continue this sentence knowing that it would be cut until such time as the funny name appears in my head I got it. Now it's time for this week's stellar shrinkflation space sound. Okay,
2: we're we're getting that's there. It's definitely an improvement. Still not good enough, but definitely an improvement.
1: Stellar what?
2: Stellar shrinkflation, because that's the name of the episode. Oh. I mean, it, it is an alliterative, so he gets some points for that. It's not that silly, but it's totally alliterative.
1: I feel like uh, this is actually Astro's sound by its Freakonomics version. Don't they talk about shrinkflation? Yeah, Isn't that do. one of yeah. the terms they use? Mm-hmm. maybe we should tag them because last <laughs> week was like so you think you can dance Astra soundbite spinoff this is freakonomics Astra soundbite <laughs> have you listened to that cormac
0: i've been to read the book i haven't read it yet
1: it's a pretty good podcast
0: i, I have enjoyed the podcast oh okay it's also a podcast
2: right? it was a book first and they spun it off into a podcast mm.
1: oh really just like us okay astro bites to Sound soundbites
0: so Time for the space sound. If you all want to close your eyes, yes.
1: Is it like pulsar wind nebula?
2: Oh, I know what it is. I I actually I don't don't know that I know what it is, but it does sound familiar. If you get it wrong, it's going to be hilarious. So let's hear it. Exactly. Um, Sabrina, you can go first, since if I know it, then it will ruin it.
1: Um, We've done a pulsar wind nebulous bass sound. It kind of sounded similar to that to me, but I'm just trying to draw off my past experience. Um, I also heard some, they weren't periodic in nature, but some bumps. So transits of some sort. I don't know. Those are two very different things. Transits and pulsar wind nebulae, but maybe mm-hmm. one of them falls into the right answer. <laughs> Go ahead, Will.
2: I think it's gravitational waves from colliding black holes or ne- black hole neutron star or two neutron stars. I can't remember which.
0: Bingo. Yep. It's the first ever gravitational wave detection because I thought since I was in a Nobel Prize winning mood today after hearing John speak, <laughs> I thought, you know, let's let's keep it on topic. But okay.
2: So it's super famous, but I actually don't think we've done it because it's the, probably the most famous sonification that astronomers can think of.
1: Mm. Amazing that I still got it wrong. <laughs> oh, whatever. Nice. Good choice. Yeah, that was a really interesting one, especially considering don't you do a lot of work on gravitational waves, Cormac?
0: No. What? Uh, I do work on massive stars that become gravitational waves. We use those words a lot when we're looking for money, but I don't Uh, actually work on gravitational
1: waves. For some reason, I thought you were like a LIGO Virgo person at some level, but maybe I'm wrong.
0: No, 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 not at all. The only connection I have is that I managed to get into a summer school last year, free trip to Greece. Very nice. Uh, Also very informative. Another Nobel Prize winner, Barry Barish, was there. But that's about the only connection I have, other than like the progenitors of stellar mass binary black hole mergers are typically the kinds of stars that i look at so there, there is a connection there but i don't work on that
1: can i get away with my pulsar wind nebulae because pulsars are neutron stars the first gravitational waves were from neutron stars so actually i was kind of right
2: no, they were black hole, black hole mergers.
1: Oh, okay. Well, there were some gravitational waves. You're
2: more wrong. From
1: neutron star mergers, weren't there? They could have been neutron stars. They hadn't actually discerned whether they were black holes or neutron stars, they, they, right?
2: They, they could have been just two really, really fat people. Have you considered that? Oh.
1: really?
2: <laughs> really, really big.
1: You're mean. You should be nicer to me at 7 a.m. <laughs> 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 I am being mean <laughs>
0: um, no but I think the first ever indirect evidence was the Hulls-Taylor binary which was a pulsar so that, that they could show radiation or gravitational energy through the period decreasing so that was actually a pulsar
1: so I just said it wrong
0: anyway Will will continue his reign of terror talking about probability prospects <laughs> around M dwarfs take it away what am I talking about oh yeah
2: okay The astrobite I'm presenting today is titled, Could Some Earthlings Survive in Exoplanets Around M-Dwarfs? And it was written by Clarissa Duo about a paper by Mariano, Badezuzzi, and others. And that was published in the Frontiers in Plant Science. You might have heard me say planetary science, but no, this was Frontiers in Plant Science. Wow. Very, very different and important. As we all know, living things on Earth are well adapted for their environment on our planet. And specific to that, plants have types of chlorophyll, and most of it is chlorophyll A, but there's B, C, D, and so on and so forth. Chlorophyll A is well adapted for the sun's spectrum. It peaks kind of in the blue and the red, which is why plants absorb those and reflect green, so we see them as green. But they also absorb blue and the red. That's a lot of the visible spectrum. And they do photosynthesis. It turns out some types of plants, which is called cyanobacteria, can convert their chlorophyll to other types in an environment where they need to use other types. So there are types like D and F. And those are suited for longer wavelengths, like more red and even infrared. And when these bacteria find themselves in like a cave or something where they get mostly indirect light that is scattered into the red and the near-infrared, they can convert chlorophyll A into DNF so they're more efficient and they can survive in that environment. Cyanobacteria, also called blue-green algae, these produce about half of the oxygen on earth and are the reason that we have oxygen at all. That was the first oxygenating event on earth was from a mass amount of these bacteria. So we owe them everything.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting because can't you go to certain beaches and see cyanobacteria? They're the ones that kind of, like, illuminate, right?
2: Are they fluorescent? I don't know.
1: So I guess they were much more common before, or...?
2: Yes, because they're anaerobic, so the highly oxygen environment, I think, put negative selective pressure on them, but they're still very common. Um, I think they do fluoresce, yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a beach in Australia... That people go to to see this beautiful blue algae light up. I'm sure there's okay, other places cool. on Earth, but
0: oh, I know what you're
2: talking about. Now. I've seen yeah. pictures of that. Yeah, is yeah, that yeah. cyanobacteria? Now I kind of want to go to Australia.
1: Well, you're not welcome here anymore after your comments this morning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you mean this evening? You mean this evening, Sabrina? Get
2: it, <laughs> it's say. afternoon. I'll have you know.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, seriously though, these authors wanted to test. If you could do photosynthesis on an exoplanet around an M-dwarf by having those cyanobacteria in that environment adapt, would they be suitable to the light from an M-dwarf? And they actually went into a GASP lab and did lab work. I don't know what kind of world you guys live in, but I've never seen a lab, let alone smelled one. And... (laughs) They had something called a Petri dish that just sounds (laughs) disgusting. And they put the bacteria on it inside a chamber that could simulate different spectra. And they did three spectra. Solar spectrum, an M7 spectrum, classic, and then far red. So no, like, blue, green light, any of that. Just all the way red and infrared only. And they used two types of cyanobacteria. One that has the ability to adapt And one that does not. And they wanted to see, you know, it's a properly controlled study, which doesn't happen in astronomy. They wanted to see if the one that can adapt, adapts better. And they did 21 days of letting them grow in this petri dish environment. And what they measured is how much growth and how much oxygen the sample produced. And that was their measure of the amount of photosynthesis.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting. I love the lab. I was almost a chemistry major. No, that's not actually true. But I do think the lab is really cool. So I think we should give it more credit and maybe talk more about it.
0: That would be a
2: fun themed
0: episode.
1: Yeah, we should do a lab themed episode.
0: Devil's advocate, my office is two doors down from radiation lab. And so, you know, anytime you see any sort of flashing light, you get very nervous. (laughs) Yeah. If you feel
2: your hands tingling, that's a bad
0: sign. Mm. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah.
2: I remember reading in the, uh, the early X-ray days, that's how they would calibrate their X-ray detectors, uh, X-ray emitters. They'd say, you want your hands to tingle just a little bit when you are over them. It's like, no, that's cancer. That's, you're getting I cancer.
1: I wonder, they probably all have cancer of the hands. They
2: all died of cancer. Aww, they all died of cancer, so the early sad. X-ray
1: people. R.I.P. Huh, yep. so,
2: I'm sure the radiation lab is much more careful <laughs> about that now.
0: Yeah, but at least there's another colleague between. So I've got Florian, and my PhD colleague who's probably listening. He's, he's my shield.
2: Yeah, if somebody starts growing an
0: ear, you'll know. But another ear. The, the, th- the third <laughs> ear is the problem, yeah. Right.
2: Well, so what they found from this lab experiment was that both cyanobacteria samples grew about the same in the solar and the M7 condition. So it's kind of surprising that even the cyanobacteria that cannot change their chlorophyll would still do fine in M7. So there is still enough coverage into the red overlapping with the solar spectrum where they can get enough energy. I mean, they did better in the solar, of course, but they grew fine in the M7. And they both adapted. The one that could adapt fully changed its type of chlorophyll. The other one just increased the amount of pigment. So just did more photosynthesis with the chlorophyll it had, which is really cool. Now, in the red-only light, only the cyanobacteria that was specially adapted survived at all. The other one did not grow whatsoever. And the one that could grew like a little bit, not a lot. But it did translate its chlorophyll A into D and F and start to grow. The thing is, transferring the type of chlorophyll takes energy. So it has to waste some of its energy in that process. But it did grow. So there is some possibility for the right adapted bacteria to survive in that environment
1: my question was so these three spectra that you're shining at the cyanobacteria aren't they kind of just like yes me
2: personally yes
1: the lab technicians are shining at the (laughs) petri dish aren't they just sort of a proxy for energy i mean they're using presumably like black body spectra Mm -hmm. and so you could say that you can't have too much energy and you can't have too little energy. Like It has to kind of be, from what you were describing, the M-dwarfs sit kind of in the middle of the two spectra that they tried, which, I don't know, intuitively that makes sense that you can't kill the thing with light. And also it needs to have some energy, just like, you know, there's a very precise equilibrium that we live on on Earth in terms of temperature.
2: Well, so to, to clarify, they did best in the solar case. And they get solar spectrum, they flourish. But they also do fine in the M dwarf case.
1: Oh, sorry. Not
2: as good, but fine. They'll grow. Okay. Um, But the solar case is what they're most adapted for. So that's what they really want. I think if you're right, if we did like a UV bright star, you would probably fry them. Um, Mm -hmm. Almost certainly you you would kill them because that denatures DNA and proteins and they would definitely not survive. But yeah, in essence, chlorophyll is extracting energy from light. So, yeah, they need the right amount of energy.
0: Yeah, but just to tack onto that, if I were a referee, I would say that this is not a good simulation of an M-dwarf spectrum because you aren't dropping giant blobs of plasma onto them mm. every so often from the stellar outbursts. So this is sort of like saying that Antarctica is perfectly habitable except for being minus 90 Celsius and a frozen wasteland. But besides that, you know, they've got wonderful, wonderful beaches, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's right. <laughs> good analogy.
2: I agree. This is not saying that M-dwarfs have habitable exoplanets. It's just saying that the issue of their ability to do photosynthesis is not as concerning. So cyanobacteria could plausibly do photosynthesis on a planet around an M-dwarf, I guess, is the right way to say this. They might not survive, but they could do some photosynthesis. And there's actually a really interesting way that this could be detected. It's something called the red edge cyanobacteria and other organisms like them, these very, very small microscopic plants, they're highly reflective in the near-infrared. So what happens is the chlorophyll is basically transparent. So it's not absorbing or reflecting anything. But the cellular structure is arranged like a lattice. And so it is almost perfectly reflective, right around 700 nanometers. And you can actually see this on Earth using satellites from space. So someday this might be possible to detect on exoplanets. Thanks for that,
0: Will. Now it's time for our one sentence summaries. So, Sabrina?
1: Yeah. So if we take a closer look at these tiny stars called m-dwarfs, their light curves become inflated in complexity. Hyphen. Some exhibit complex changes in light curves that can be explained through clumps of material around the star. Still one sentence, right? Semicolon hyphen. Yeah,
2: that's one sentence.
1: Someone who's better at grammar can choose the punctuation mark. (laughs) (laughs) and will what was yours
2: the organisms responsible for providing the earth with oxygen could do photosynthesis on a planet around an m dwarf and someday we might even be able to detect it if they
0: don't die from blobs of plasma (laughs) and that provides a trademark cornbrick seamless introduction to our first discussion point which is the following Do we think the search for life, and I'm doing air quotes because this is a podcast and we don't have subtitles, (laughs) Mm -hmm. is the search for life overused as a research motivation these days? Yes. Next question. Okay. No. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
1: (laughs) I say no, because I mean, we didn't talk much about, you know, intelligent life signatures in this episode, but I was just reading an article recently about, I think it was one of the Qualcomm founders just passed away, unfortunately, but left like $200 million to SETI research with SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. That's what the acronym stands for. And some people, including previous co-hosts of the show, have called it pseudoscience. So <laughs> I think it's debatable. <laughs> like it does help. There is, I don't know if you can say it's overuses research motivation because it's something that's very universally understood and accepted as important. So, if it helps science get more money, we're already so underfunded.
0: Well, we're mixing up three different things here. There's three categories to the search for life, right? There are what I would call astronomers who are claiming search for life for exoplanets and they're trying to do spectroscopy and look for things in Venus. You know, I'm gonna call mm-hmm. that like astronomy search for life. Then there's the SETI crowd who do search for life for technosignatures, and I'm fine with that. Because essentially you're looking for some sort of repetitive signal, like a transient, and that's a very normal thing in astronomy. Essentially keep our eyes open and see if we see something strange. That, I think that's completely fine, especially if it's private money paying for it. And then there's the third category of, we'll say, maybe more media attention given to maybe more speculative avenues to looking for extraterrestrial presence, yeah. perhaps even here on Earth. Right. When I brought up this discussion point, mm. my intention was to talk about the first of these, that basically people who were doing, say... Exoplanet stuff saying we could find life when really you may find some very, even with JWST, some very rough indicators of potentially molecules Mm -hmm. we currently associate with photosynthesis, which is not the same as finding life, right? Even on Venus, they can't even agree if they found phosphine, and that's next door. They didn't, but that's not the point.
1: There was a huge debate on this actually within the SETI community because I worked on SETI research in my undergrad. Sorry if that offends anyone, but actually, NASA (laughs) defined the search for life kind of in the first description you gave, Cormac. But I think that a lot of people working in SETI would disagree because there's a lot of overlap between researchers. Like, for example, I recently saw Sarah Seeger, who's one of probably like the biggest scientists when it comes to habitability. She was giving a talk at a Techno Signatures talk series. So I think that they mm. do share science and scientists a bit more than one might think but maybe people are more inclined especially within the astronomy community to say that they're more involved with the first one because it sounds more reputable but I do think there's more overlap than we tend to talk about there are people that are interested in technosignatures that are also interested in biosignatures and stuff
0: but they are very different ways of doing research right like technosignatures a lot of it's radio astronomy looking for flashes and bursts and you don't typically associate radio astronomy with exoplanets unless it's star-plant interactions like we talked about during the episode right so they may be interested in the same things if they're out there but I would you know they're definitely different fields in terms of like people doing atmospheres of exoplanets are doing atmospheres of exoplanets and one of the motivations might be if we understand this better we might be able to find signs of life but that's not the same as looking for a repetitive flash of burst or something right
1: but they choose which stars to look at with SETI instruments based on Gaia data or what's looked at with tests. So they'll match, if they look at mm-hmm. a star with tests, they'll match that with a radio observation. If a star is more likely to host a habitable planet, they say, okay, we're going to look at that with our radio instruments. So I, I don't know. I okay, feel like they're enough. more yeah. in- intertwined.
2: I, I hear what you're saying. My initial reaction to this, Cormac, is from a funding agency perspective, if you're looking for funding, you put habitability no matter how you can, because that's what NASA, ESA, and other funding agencies, the NSF, have indicated as one of their programmatic goals is search for life biosignatures understand our place in the universe and the solar system so on so whether or not your work actually contributes to the search for life you got to say you're somehow contributing to it and gin it up so i think in reality the number of people claiming to do a search for life is much much larger than the number of people actually doing the search for life it's a little disingenuous I don't think that's the problem. I don't think the funding agencies are, are duped. They're made of us. We we know – I mean, NASA review panels are scientists. They know when someone is is pushing it a little bit, and maybe they're okay with that. Maybe they're not. But it's – they can see to the quality of the science, I hope, I think. But I guess the broader question of, like, is this a good use of money? I mean, where are private donations in the millions? That sounds like an excellent use of money. So – I'm inclined to think it's good. Sure. And I'm inclined to think that all astronomy is good astronomy. It's hard to identify bad, wasteful astronomy. <laughs> Next question.
0: Alright. So tacking on to the idea that people might follow the money, right? Do people also follow the instruments, right? So mm. In, when you designed a telescope, at least in theory, say JWST at the time would have been designed with the most compelling science questions in mind. But now that it's built and sitting there, we're not getting a new toy for 20 or 30 years of the scale of JWST, like a flagship, mm-hmm. you know, billion, $10 billion telescope. Does that tend to decide or determine what kind of science gets done? Are we letting the, the tool pick the science as opposed to science picking the tools? Yeah, that's a great question. So... Science is
2: supposed to drive the tools because the tools are designed to adhere to science guidelines. And it's why something like James Webb takes decades to build. The next flagship telescope for astronomy, which is going to be the Habitable Worlds Observatory, probably out of NASA, is already in development and it's about 20 years away. So the reality is you start very early. What's all the science we want to do? Then you start picking your instruments. Then you start – Narrowing things down and feasibility. However, once the instrument exists, the science is defined and limited by the instrument. You can't do UV with James Webb. It doesn't see that. So I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, when Hubble's gone, it's going to be no UV anymore, which is a real problem. You may not have launched James Webb, for instance, to look at Uranus. It was part of it, but it wasn't the motivation. It wasn't the detectors weren't selected for Uranus, but it's great at looking at Uranus. So the science you can do becomes then defined by the limitations of the instrument. But no, I think the science is the ultimate driver of why we build what we build, plus practicality. Some things are not technologically ready. For Mm. example, this idea of a star shade, which is a, a free floating maneuverable umbrella very far away from a telescope that you could use to block out a star so you could see the planet orbiting it and put it like a kilometer away from the telescope nice idea not technologically ready what is technologically ready is a Mm. coronagraph which is within the structure of the telescope not as good as blocking out the star but it's still good and so there's a technological readiness that you have to have for Mm -hmm. a flagship mission that you may not have to have for a small mission cubesat you can kind of fly anything try it out flagship you better fly stuff that you Mm -hmm. know works and is going to be reliable for decades
1: i was somehow stumbling across like really old papers that referenced james webb the other day from like the early 2000s and you'll see that the entire instrument Mm. is structured around science like high z galaxies for example The reason that certain cameras and instruments on James Webb observe different wavelengths are completely related to how the light is redshifted. And they want to observe the Lyman-Alpha line for like a Z equals seven galaxy.
0: No, sure, sure. I get that. No, I'm not I'm not arguing about how they designed it. I'm saying now that we're like, say, as a graduate student today. Will the questions we can answer with James Webb influence the questions I ask? So this has nothing to do with how James Webb is designed, but say like scientists now. And I'm seeing it mm-hmm. myself that we're kind of modifying what we want to know with what we could do with the tool.
2: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Just to be clear, that's what I'm trying to ask here or probe here as a question. Rather than like, of course, it was designed with specific goals in mind. And those goals are absolutely fantastic and mind blowing. But now that the tool exists and is sitting there and is doing its thing and we can't change it mm-hmm. anymore. Is, is what it can do going to influence the questions we ask? Yes. I would argue that, of course, Yes,
2: and I think that was the second half of my answer, which is once the tool exists, yeah. you ask your questions based on mm. what the tool can answer. And I think if you go further, like yeah. will the next tool be answering questions that we only know, we only posed because James Webb was able to help us learn to ask them? And I think some yes and some no. Like, yes, you want to follow up on those mm. areas, but also... The next big instrument's got to have UV coverage because we're going to lose that when Hubble goes down, which is probably going to be within the next 10 years, maybe sooner. So Mm. I think there's some catch up, you know, make sure that everybody gets equal attention, but also some like, yes, the IR is very interesting. There will be more follow up in that dedicated instruments Mm -hmm. for sure.
0: But there's big issues when you make these decisions about, for example, when SOFIA, the Far Infrared Atmospheric Observatory was was Mm cut. There's a huge amount of expertise in that wavelength range that is lost because they aren't building a new one for a while. And so everybody who was in that is going to have to do something else. And by the time in, I don't know, 20, 30, whatever, n number of years when they decide to build something in that wavelength range again, they're going to be starting from scratch on the human side of it because the people who designed and built these things are either retired or doing something else. And so I think that's maybe one of the strongest arguments for continuing wavelength coverage in that if you don't keep giving engineers jobs they will find something else to do mm-hmm. it was very expensive per flight well that's the problem because normally with a space telescope development is expensive the launch is mm-hmm. expensive but after that it's relatively cheap but because sofia was in a plane the running costs didn't mm-hmm. go down dramatically once it was launched there was a strong argument to close it and there was a lot of controversy i think over the decadal survey recommended to discontinue it
1: I would argue that translating your skills from the far infrared to the near infrared is not that hard compared to translating your skills from a photon counting instrument to like a voltage measuring instrument, like something in radio.
0: Hmm. Well, look, I I don't know anything about the specifics, but like, I just know that they've got a fantastic machine that will do great science, but they just have no way of getting that technology where it needs to be.
2: In some ways, these agencies operate on a sunk cost model where once you've invested a certain amount, you, you have to see mm. it through, even if it doesn't make economic sense. But I, I don't think it's in the best interests mm. of science to keep engineers busy at the risk of losing expertise. It's unfortunate that some expertise is lost, and you have to think about longevity in terms of these missions. You know, Any long-term planning to the outer solar system, all those missions, they have to start thinking about longevity early. And that's what the Voyager missions taught everybody. They weren't expected to go this long, but they're taking it very seriously. However, I I just – there's not enough money to do everything. We just – we can't be that efficient. So we have to prioritize what we need and what we can foresee. And we can't look past the reasonable foreseeable horizon right now. At least right now we can't. Maybe someday we can start to think about that. But it's – you know we predict – we really predict 10 years out and then 20, 30, 40 we – can start to have an idea, but the details are fuzzy. Good questions.
1: Don't apply the sunken cost fallacy to your love life, guys. Just apply it to science.
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. I needed some dating advice.
1: <laughs> That's my last comment.
2: Cormac, these were really interesting discussion questions. Thank yeah, you for I bringing
1: agree. them up. I
0: like this angle.
1: Thanks, Cormac.
0: This was fun. Well, thank you for the wonderful discussion, guys. That concludes episode 83 of Astro Soundbites stellar shrinkflation if you want to read the astrobytes we talked about today check out the links in the show notes you can find it and all the others at apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos
2: Okay, Cormac getting some work out in his cut
0: job this week. Come on, compared to the last time with the leaf blower. I mean, come on. Uh, Suddenly just this like, like, uh, that's going to leave a mark. Yeah, that was bad.